Welcome to the Unlucky, I Will Find Out, the episode 13 of the Learning Curve podcast. My name is Bob Bowden with Choice Media, and I'm joined by Kara Kendall. Kara, can you hear me? I can hear you, Bob. How are you doing? How was your Thanksgiving? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, it was nice. I went to Austin, Texas, and uh, one day the temperature was 81 degrees. Fahrenheit. Oh, I love Austin, Texas. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, our intro music there, When the Saints Go Marching In, I do not remember for sure, but I'm told, Kara, that that's what my mother was singing when she was wheeled into the delivery room to uh, for the <laughs> emergency of go there. Bob Bowden's first day on this <laughs> on this in this planet. She was. Singing, oh, it was dear listeners, just the Orleans. story you've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so when the Saints Go Marching In is kind of my creation story. Yeah. So there we have it. Um, there okay. we have it. Yeah. <laughs> How was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> my Thanksgiving was amazing. It wasn't warm like San, like uh, Austin, Texas, but it was absolutely uh, amazing. Good friends, good food. I made a beautiful kale dish, Bob, which I'm sure you'd love to hear. Here, a vegan. I'm not vegan, but it sounded good. Vegan kale dish that was okay. a hit. Yeah, yeah, we we can uh, begin a cooking podcast as a separate offshoot. Of we could. I know we've got some great barbecue fans out there, so I'll bring the kale. They can bring the barbecue. We'll be good. All right. It's like a sitcom spinoff. You know, this is a podcast spinoff that we'll we'll do your cooking <laughs> thing. Everybody needs that. I think it's time for us to get into the stories of the week, my okay. friend. Okay. And we've got we've got a lot of good stories this week because, you know, we were on a little hiatus. So we had some time to, to let things build up. So, of course, we would be remiss not to mention Pisa. Pisa. If we're not talking about Nape, we get to talk about Pisa. It's a test that's put out by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And when I was a professor, I used to remind my students that the U.S. was thought Pisa was a really good idea until we started finding out that we're really mediocre in comparison to most countries. But basically, this gives us a read on sort of what U.S. students know and can do in comparison to other countries. So this sort of Mediocre performance on PISA is not at all surprising, but it seems, Bob, that this time around, people are trying to say that this just shows that this has been decades of failed education reforms. So I'm going to say, you know, I don't know if we can draw that conclusion from PISA. Um, They point out in this article that it's inspired reforms such as formula-based funding, which is when we say that certain students need more money than others. Um, But what I would say instead is that to understand PISA, just like any other test, you need to look under the hood and see how individual states are doing. And also, if we're going to talk about reform, we need to talk about consistency over time, something that this article doesn't even touch upon. But what do you say about these PISA results, Bob? Well, yeah, so given to 600,000 15-year-olds in 79 countries, the PISA test. And it's funny, the establishment, when the, when the American schools look better, like on the TIMS test, by the way, another international comparison, the establishment says, see, look how good our schools are. And when the U.S. schools look worse on the PISA test, they say, see what a failure education reform is. <laughs> so it's, all failures are due to reform. All successes are due to the establishment. Uh, so... I have a bit of a rant here, but I'll try to make it fast, Kara. I know, I know, you know, I know we're in a tight time frame. I mean, but it, I, I got, I get, Bob, this, I've been missing your rants. Please go ahead. In this, in this world of standardized tests, I think both there is both a vast right wing conspiracy and a vast left wing conspiracy. The right wing conspiracy is to use standardized test results when they are 
bad, like an international PISA test, which often show the U.S. doing very poorly, 30th or 40th or some low placement in math or, or, or uh, science, something like that, and also state-based academic proficiency numbers when they reveal abysmal performance by the government monopoly schools, the those on the right will say, look at these standardized test scores that are so bad, that's proof we need to change. But then when those same tests have the effect of nationalizing a curriculum like Common Core or when schools of choice like charter or private school choice uh, schools do poorly on standardized tests, uh, the right is quick to dismiss those same tests uh, for not capturing the uniqueness of certain school models or schools that might serve a unique population of kids or this reason or that reason. So so the right will sometimes use and other times not use standardized test scores as it suits the narrative. And so the left wing also has their own conspiracy. Uh, sitting in plain sight is but really rarely talked about. Like, for, for example, the Stanford Credo Charter School Test first published in 2009 – and they generally reflected poorly on the charter sector with the media trumpeting those numbers and luxuriating in the intoxicating vapors of how bad charter schools are with that first credo test. Oh, the media loved it. It basically said that was back in 2009 that char only 17 percent of charter schools were better than traditional public schools, while 37 percent were worse than traditional public schools. Oh, the establishment and the media loved that. But then – Here's their flip-flop. In 2013, the Credo study was much larger, had 10 more states, thousands of more kids. This time, the numbers flipped to 25% of charters outperforming traditional public schools versus 19% that don't. And then, uh, oh, Credo also said this, that black students in poverty who attend charter schools gain an additional 29 days in reading and 36 days in math every year they're in a charter school. They gain that much more learning. So, so the Credo study results flipped, and suddenly the same mainstream media and, and unions. Suddenly, Credo is terrible. Right. Suddenly, oh, they became as quiet and withdrawn about those new Credo studies as a forlorn lover staring at the old vacation pictures from four years before, who now has not wow. a word to say. Bob, so, Bob, I'm sorry. I, ha I just have to respond to this really quickly to say. Cheers to locating, number one, a vast conspiracy on each side of the political spectrum. Number two, luxuriating in the intoxicating vapors. I yes. think this this is like a phrase, my friend. We're, we're, we're going to see where else we can apply that in a future podcast. It's going to become a game. And I just like I just missed something about a forlorn lover. But I mean, you are on your game. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, yeah, four years before, the, you know, when Credo uh, said what the mainstream media liked, then the, it was great, you know, but then four years <laughs> later, oh, no, where is my forlorn lover called Credo, who's now cheating on me with somebody else? I'm going to stare at the old pictures. Anyway, so my view has always been that Senator Mackey Raymond Credo is going to appreciate that. <laughs> you know, no, maybe. Uh, standardized tests do tell us something, but they don't tell us everything. They're not the full truth. They're a window to the truth, but maybe with like a sheer curtain over that window. OK, but Bob, like they give us something to talk about on the learning curve. We're going to move on to, and, and this actually is, is pertinent to another kind of test as well. This one from Hetchinger Report, up to 3.6 million students should be labeled gifted, but 
aren't. So this new report talks about the fact that lots of states, school districts, et cetera, are, are overlooking gifted students, but it talks even more about the gap in identification so that white and Asian students are more often identified as being gifted in comparison to their black and Latino counterparts. Surprising to whom? I have no idea. This is not surprising. <laughs> We've known about tracking, right, since the 70s. And to be clear, like gifted education is one form of tracking. We have many forms of it. Um, I was as a as a gifted child myself, Bob, which meant absolutely nothing um, other than I, I took one test and did all right on it, I think. Was no, it, it means and, a lot and then I got lots podcast. more resources. To our right? listeners, it means um, everything. I, I, had, I kind of thought that this had gone away. But what this article really made me think about is the move to just better customizing education for all kids. And I started asking myself, so do we really need these labels anymore? Do we have the ability to personalize for kids? But I do think the one thing of value that I found in this in this piece is thinking through what it means when you've got teachers, many of whom come from very different backgrounds than the children that they are educating, who, as we all know, have implicit biases towards certain groups of kids. And if you're, how are we actually evaluating it's not only about how are we objectively evaluating based on some maybe objective test, who's gifted or who's not, and then who gets this special sort of tailored attention in many cases. But um, what's even to recommend kids for these tests, oftentimes, you know, the the subjective judgments that human beings, good human beings, but fallible nonetheless, make about kids. And it really makes me question question sort of the whole approach that we use in terms of um, evaluating what kids need. And when it comes to giving kids specific advantages, which let's be clear, you know, gifted kids should be challenged too. But oftentimes these programs come with very specific resource advantages. I think it raises a really important question. Uh, yes, Kara. Well, it's an interesting piece about the gifted kids. I mean, and this happens to be a passion of mine. Um, uh, so yeah, what do they find? Four in 10 children attended public schools where, where not a single student was identified as gifted. And even though most states legally require schools to find and serve gifted children, provide the money to do so, it's still only, you know, four in 10. That's amazing to me that that many schools have no gifted kids. And also remember, there's a racial component to the co-author of this, uh, of this study released by Purdue University, Marsha Gentry, estimated that two thirds to three quarters of gifted African-American students are overlooked. We're losing talent, she said. And so I think to most of us school choices, re we react to this gifted kids are being ignored story with a yeah, no kidding reaction. Although I, I, that said, you know, this is my, my you know, convoluted layers as usual, but I do bristle a tad with the concept of gifted as a binary designation. So in other words, this is kind of a, something that the establishment education world loves to do kind of uh, over, you know, m make things like this binary. Well, there's not just gifted kids or not gifted kids. There's not just gifted in math or just in English or even in music. There's gifted in communicating an idea. There's gifted in feeling empathy. There's gifted in recovering from adversity. There's gifted in stamina or, or, or imagining creative connections that otherwise aren't visible or seen by other people, disparate ideas that are not normally connected, uh, or a gift in seeing a different future uh, that then exists today, where maybe others can't imagine that other future. There's all kinds of gifts, in other words. So there's something that, that 
gets my hackles up a little bit when I read about the, you know, uh, education establishments uh, definitions and they've got spreadsheets and they walk around and there's kind of often full of their own, you know, uh, overconfidence, I say, in, in these kinds of discernments of what, you know, kids need and what kids are when in fact it's a massive distribution. Ultimately, it's fractals. The closer you look, there's more detail there. Then you'll look even closer and there's still more detail. That's what America, ed- American education really is. And it's it's uh, it, it basically is the kind of thing that the school choice and basically multidimensional education uh, world that I advocate, it, it, uh, it's, it's what it's what that model, what that paradigm affirms, which is all kinds of gifts. All right. So that said, with my rant on that, we turn now to our newsmaker interview with the great Professor E.D. Hirsch. That's coming up right after this break. So this week with us, we have Dr. Edie Hirsch, Jr., the founder and chairman of the Core Knowledge Foundation and professor emeritus of education and humanities at the University of Virginia. He is the author of several acclaimed books on education, including Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know, The Schools We Need, The Knowledge Deficit, and The Making of Americans, in which he has persisted as a voice of reason making the case for a quality of educational opportunity. And I've got to tell you, those books were among the very first I read as a doctoral student in education. We are so pleased to have you. Welcome, Professor Hirsch. Well, thanks. It's fun to be here and to do it so conveniently with a Skype on my lap. And uh, and, and so uh, this, is a yeah, great, very- this is a great way to do an interview. Fantastic. Well, so we definitely... We have some we have some great questions for you. We've been very eager to to get to hear from you. So my first question is about your your best selling 1987 book, Cultural Literacy. And a best selling book in education is quite a feat, I have to say. So, but in your best selling book, Cultural Literacy: What Every American Needs to Know, you were really one of the first to talk about how wider access to background knowledge in K to 12 education can help create greater academic equity and social mobility. And, you know, many other authors have talked about it since, but you really, you, you were the first, you laid the groundwork. And I'd love to know, how did you arrive at the thesis of this book and how was it received in your well, opinion? Those, yes, those are two very different uh, areas of experience. Uh, the, 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 what happened, it, it was, it was an it was an accident of my work in literary theory. I I began to study psycholinguistics, and in the in the sixties, when I was doing this, uh, the late fifties and sixties, there was a tremendous uh, growth of insight into the silent element in speech. Uh, that is the need for the unsaid to communicate meaning. And in in fact, I think it's the most important uh, educational insight uh, in a hundred years. Well, there's one other that we could talk about that has the same uh, generative quality. And the the insight was, I mean, let's take a simple nursery rhyme. 
Polly put the kettle on, Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. And, uh, well, uh, if you don't know what have tea means, it's, a, it's quite a meaningless uh, little rhyme in spite of the fact that we say it to small children. So what do you need to know? Well, you need to know that have tea means you sit around and chat and you, you have uh, cookies and you put the kettle on, on what? You put the kettle on the stove to heat up water and you have to know how to make tea and so on. I mean, that's about as simple an example as one could contrive. And yet you could go on and on with that. To, to, that's where literary exegesis came in, you know, with the new criticism and all that. So the conflux, you might say, of new criticism plus psycholinguistics the, uh, was, was really a huge discovery in that field, how important background knowledge is. And, but it's not just any old background knowledge. It's the background knowledge that's specific to the particular utterance, which is, the, in this case, specific to having tea. So that's a quick rundown of that. Uh, of course, you could go further and say, does it mean the same in England as it means in the USA? And the answer is no. They're quite, there's, there's, that's the, I'm very interested in the national character of background knowledge because uh, two reasons, two, two reasons. Polly is probably not going to join them in tea in England. Polly's the name of a, of a servant, usually. It's a nickname for Mary. And, uh, and then the second stanza is Suki put the kettle on. It's, it's a rather rich family. They have two servants. <laughs> another, thing to, <laughs> another thing to note is to make it rhyme, the, the second stanza is uh, Suki take it off again, Suki take it off again. They've all gone away. Well, tea doesn't rhyme with away in America, but it, but it did when the rhyme was made in England, which is they've, they've all gone away rhymes with tay, which was the upper class British way of saying tea. Wow. So there's a sociological dimension to it that the Americans are very rightly, happily innocent of. That's, that's enough on the idea of background knowledge, but it was, it's so important in fact, it's key because language, for one thing, is the vehicle of teaching, primarily. It's, it's class room teaching. And if the class as a whole has the background knowledge to understand the lesson, then that means that everybody uh, is included, including disadvantaged kids. Mm -hmm. uh, so... It, and this has been shown in spades. It's it's really the secret to narrowing the gap between uh, uh, advantaged and disadvantaged children. Is and and Kara had also asked about the, I guess, the reaction to this concept of oh, yes. knowledge. But, and I, I guess you I, made some people mad. Is that would that be fair to say? That was another. Uh, that was a real experience. It was quite a surprise that I, I was tagged as being a sort of conservative white male, you know, um, racist almost, uh, 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 interested in promoting Anglo culture. Well, of course, it is Anglo culture in the sense that it's in, in English. That's the, that's the national language in the United States, thanks to Noah Webster. And, you know, it, so it was all very plausible, but it, it came out just at the beginning of the multicultural movement. 
And uh, so the left thought this was a bad book. And the right greeted it. The in-between people thought it made a lot of sense. Uh, so I, that's why I think it's very important to have a political center because... Uh, because they make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, yes, the, it, that was a vociferous reaction, plus an, a, a pro and con uh, to the book. But a lot of people bought it because there was a list of 5,000 items that it said school children should learn uh, if they want to be able to master the print culture. And a and, lot of people bought it because it was also it was a very informative book, and and schools started adopting it too. I mean, so so now you've got a core knowledge foundation and a curriculum that schools can use. The foundation even before the book came out, and uh, it, 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 we did uh, create with the help of a lot of teachers, uh, we did create a sequence grades one through six, and. Uh, so there are now 2,000 Cornellish schools across the country using that sequence. And there are a couple of thousand more using the uh, uh, Cornellish Language Arts Program, which in, in, integrates a, a lot of that year-by-year -year knowledge that's in the Cornellish sequence. So it, ha it is catching on. I wish, the, I wish the concepts would catch on. Then people could do intelligent things on their own. But but basically, let me just say that you can't fight City Hall. You can't fight uh, what science really has determined with a, with a great deal of certainty, that uh, language proficiency uh, depends on shared knowledge among the speakers. And so if you don't provide our children with the shared knowledge that's needed to function and communicate well, in the wider society, you're not doing your job as a school. Uh, that's that's the Hirschism in a nutshell. When you mention core knowledge and the and the general idea of codifying all the things students should know, it, it reminds me of something. And I think, where have I heard that word before? Core. And I'm like, oh yeah, the Common Core movement. And <laughs> yeah. so you published a commentary a little over six years ago in the Huffington Post titled "Why I'm for." The Common Core, teacher bashing and Common Core bashing are both uncalled for. And who, just who, as a bit who, of a... Who wrote that? Uh, you did. Okay. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> why I'm for the Common Core. And so uh, just so you know, I was uh, known as an opponent of the Common Core, as were others at the Pioneer Institute. I don't know about Kara, but... Uh, but I'll tell you my own thinking. When proponents first explained the idea to me, it was described as just minimum standards, that all, the basics that all kids should learn, and that made some sense to me. But then I saw the Park and Smarter Balance Testing Consortia emerging, and it quickly morphed into defining entire curricula, which was to me fundamentally different than explaining a minimum set of standards. And so well, that's that was my opposition. So my question to you is, what do you, in your in your view, what happened with the Common Core movement, and would you still be for it? Look, uh, no. I what I would say is, it's a great idea if it uh, if it put content into the <laughs> Common Core, <laughs> uh, because uh, it, 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 what it, let, let me be quite specific. Common Core state standards. 
beware of that word standards, because what it means is we're going to tell you to do something, but we're not going to define the content. That's what that word standards has come to mean. So we've got to have, so in the common core standards, we're told we have to read uh, the, these kinds of things. And we have to learn how to read complex texts. And we have to read certain genres. But they didn't say which Shakespeare play you had to read and which history you had to know. Uh, and until, until you do that, you haven't got what really amounts to usable common core standards. There has to be common core content. Uh, but as you know, Professor, people sought to kind of reverse engineer the content based on what the tests focused on. Well, uh, yeah, but the tests also have no guidance uh, <laughs> for, for what content. That's not what they said at the time, but yeah, go ahead. So, by the way, the tests are not uh, – uh, I'm very interested in the following fact that, that – the success academies have been unbelievable. And I don't know whether you know Pondicio's new book on how the other half learns. Sure. Uh, they've been very successful in getting higher grades on the reading tests than Westchester County or any number of affluent places, which also get high grades. It's just that the success academies get even higher. And that's because they've learned how to take the test. And the tests themselves are content-free, you know. So I'm suspicious of reading tests as they are now constructed and given, if they're not connected to content. Uh, here's what happened in the 20s and 30s. The, the subject that used to be literature and language became social, um, uh, what was uh, language arts. It became the language arts. So the idea behind language arts is that uh, once you learn how to read, uh, then you learn, and once you learn reading comprehension skills, then you can become a good reader. Uh, that turns out not to be true. The, the theory, that's a theory, by the way, we're still operating on. And the reason it's not true is that language depends on specific content. If I can digress just a minute on, on that issue of specificity of content, it also turns out to be true of, of every uh, skill, every expert form of expertise. There's no such thing as a general skill. You can't, you, you, you don't become a good tennis player because you're a good swimmer. You, it, there, it, it, it isn't just general athletic ability that makes you a top expert in a in a sport you have to learn the specific sport and that and that was the second discovery of cognitive science that i i think is key mm -hmm. which is the don't it's called the domain specificity of skill so professor hirsch i was also wondering if you could talk so throughout your academic career you've been an english professor at the university of virginia so right. It, right. you're writing about k to 12 education but but practicing in higher education right. and i'm really curious to know about the changes that you've seen on college campuses over time uh, what yeah. what what are your observations well the the problem is i 
been in rather elite colleges. So the advantaged kids were getting the background knowledge that, who get into such colleges at Yale and at UVA, where I have taught for many years. Uh, the kids that can get into these colleges uh, are uh, pretty well okay. Uh, but there's a the reason I uh, but I it's a complicated story if you're just asking for how uh, did did my experiences lead to this um, it was it was as much theoretical as anything else but there was one incident in particular that got me on to this idea and it was that I did some tests of UVA students I wanted to find out what they really could understand and couldn't. And I did notice a decline, even in undergraduates between, say, the 60s and the, and the 70s, <clears throat> uh, when the schools were more and more child-centered, the elementary schools were. And I noticed a difference between uh, the kids at UVA and the students at a uh, black university just down down the road towards Richmond, uh, Virginia Commonwealth, I think it was called. Uh, and the the students in the black university, then it was pretty well segregated. Uh, they didn't even understand the question, and that was a point that uh, the very uh, eloquent writer Lisa Delpit uh, who wrote a book called Other People's Children. Great book. She, com she complained about uh, the assumptions of child-centered education or progressivism, and uh, it, namely that they would do a, a discovery learning in particular because uh, th these children couldn't discover anything if they didn't have the background knowledge to do it. Uh, that was her point and she she made it very eloquently and then about the same time I was discovering it within my own work that the the big difference between advantaged and disadvantaged children was possession of the shared background knowledge that more literate people possessed and yeah, and I think it's safe to say that in some of your core knowledge schools, um, I know I know of quite a few, um, both in districts and in, in charter school settings that are using the curriculum. And time and again, many of those schools are cited as, as ones that are closing achievement gaps. So um, right. it, it's really interesting, really, really great. Stuff. It's interesting to see it work. And there's a particularly interesting uh, set of schools, uh, to uh, my mind, in the South Bronx, which, as you know, is the is the most disadvantaged borough in New York. Uh, there's a set of six or seven schools uh, run by a, a wonderful superintendent named Jeffrey Litt. And he caught hold of this idea way back about the time, you know, in the late 80s when when that book came out, and and we put had put out the uh, sequence, and so he's been doing it for eighteen years, and and New York State just uh, published a uh, a list of so-called recognition schools that that had closed the, the gap between students and uh, between rich and poor, and it 
every single one of uh, of lit schools, uh, uh, Cornell schools, uh, was on that list. One, two, three, four, five, six, right in a row, and a lot of the more, you know, more more known uh, schools were not on the list of for having closed gaps uh, in in a consistent way between. Uh, disadvantaged and advantaged kids. So, and he, of course, went from K through eight, and and all of his students in all six of the schools got into select high schools. And mind you, this is the most disadvantaged area of New York uh, City, which is pretty dismal. And it's, of course, it's it's a, it's a standout in that context. So. It's not only that the kids do well in absolute terms, it's that these gaps do get closed over time if you have a coherent speech community in the classroom. That that leads me to to a question because you you pointed out that these successful schools are K through eight, and certainly um, in part of your, your argument is that that cultural literacy it needs to begin very early, and and we all know um, famously you know the vocabulary gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children and et cetera, and people who have had the privilege of an education you know pass that along in the home to their children cultural knowledge cultural literacy, but. Do you have thoughts about what it is we can do? So many of us um, in the in the in schools um, serve children who come to us um, having had um, huge gaps in their knowledge, say in high school. Yet we still have a responsibility to help those children succeed. Oh, yeah. Do you, mm-hmm. you have Absolutely. examples or um, or thoughts about high schools that can help? students who have those gaps fill them in order to become successful? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, it's one, let me say right away, I, since I'm so focused on the elementary grades that I have no expertise in answering that question. But I do think it's important to take a systematic approach. I mean, the, 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 what's made the difference in the elementary schools is taking a systematic approach. And I think that uh, another thing is that I would recommend is look with a very skeptical eye at the so-called discovery modes of learning, which are promoted in our education schools. There, there have been very uh, first-rate articles from cognitive psychologists about the inutility of so-called discovery learning and constructivism, as it's called, uh, with novices. And of course, these disadvantaged kids are novices in spades. Again, that was still uh, Lisa Delpit's point. So I would say two things that you you need to be deliberate and explicit, but you need to be instructivists, not constructivists, not dependent on the child uh, gaining the knowledge and working it out for his or herself. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the more one must use all always, you see constantly articles about this mode of constructivist instruction uh, making wonderful strides. But the second rate science that's produced, it's not really uh, properly refereed because it doesn't happen. It's not consistent with actually how the mind works. And 
the idea that any, that a disadvantaged kids who lacks the background, it's like that black student who handed me or students who handed me back blank paper when I had asked them a question to write about. You you simply can't discover something that isn't there. So <laughs> I don't want to get too exercised about it. <laughs> It's amazing. Instructive is not constructivist. Professor, I wanted to also ask about about politics and uh, the culture wars. And I quote now from the revered canon of the other revered uh, canon of great human understanding, Wikipedia. And your page, which says Hirsch himself is an avowed Democrat and has described himself as practically a socialist and a man of the left, the old left. But then it quotes the Making of Americans 2010, in which you explained that you're a political liberal, but once you recognize the relative inertness and stability of the shared background knowledge students need to master reading and writing, you are forced to become an educational conservative. And so on that basis, I wanted to just ask you about the culture wars. Even just recently, we're seeing stories about the Seattle public schools uh, suggesting it's going to put uh, ethnic studies into math curriculum. and Reason.com saying the Seattle district has proposed a new social justice-infused curriculum that would focus on power and oppression and history of resistance and liberation within the field of mathematics. And just this week, <laughs> one more example, we got a report from <laughs> – just this week, we got a report from oh, a group calling itself – That could be true within the field of mathematicians. But uh, but nobody is right mind would say, would say it was well, within the field of mathematics. Anyway, look, it sounds uh, crazy. But let me just finish. So we got a, this week a report from a group calling itself the Coalition of Educational Justice about New York City, and they say they did a survey and they claim that eight out of every ten New York City uh, books that New York City students are likely to see are written by white authors. And they also looked at 1,200 book titles, I guess, novels, and found that more than 50% included a white main character, even though white children are only 15% of the city's students. So with all of that, I'd like to ask how you see the line between cultural sensitivity, you're an avowed liberal, and the other side, which I would call group identity. Yeah, well, you called it toxic identity. You could put it this way. Uh, there's a difference between the old left and the new left. Uh, my friend Dick Rorty, the late Dick Rorty, is a great philosopher, uh, called the new left the cultural left and its uh, preoccupation with otherness. And, he, you know, he granted that there was every reason to make clear that we honored other people's cultures and so on. Uh, on the other hand, he... He made a reference to what the old left used to do, which was it, it used to make platoon, what he called platoon movies. I don't know whether you remember any of those old movies. They were usually war movies. And people from every nationality and ethnic group were in the platoon. And they oh, all sure. were, willing, were willing to help each other and willing to die for their country and so on. So he uh, already associated uh, that old left, the, the platoon movie left, as it were, with um, ignoring, or, or essentially, which he, uh, other people's race, because there was such a thing as being an ethnic American, and uh, and, and everybody deserved deserved to be treated 
you know, well with one with the other, because they they were Americans and they had right. to be honored. Like, and I thought the image of the platoon movies was a very good image of a better version. And and I would say that yes, I'm interested in ethnic studies. And if you don't believe there's an American ethnicity, you had better look further into the subject because there is. Ethnicity is not an inborn trait. To think so is to be a racist, uh, is to be an essentialist, as the, they say in the literature. So, uh, that, by the way, there's some pretty good sociological studies about how the multicultural emphasis has increased racism in the United States. Fascinating. It's, it's something I think that these ethnic uh, preoccupations hesitate to admit. As soon as you admit that there's an American ethnicity and that it isn't racial, it's cultural, uh, then you have a different mission for the schools so that everybody can have the same ethnicity, as it were. And, and uh, by the way, there's another thing that reinforces that idea, which is very much um, news because I mean, it's, very, it's rather new, and that is the discovery that the human neocortex is, just as Locke said, is a blank slate. That's mm -hmm. something that has not been clear in these so-called ethnic studies, the idea that young, a young child's brain is a blank slate, and it, and it can be rewritten and written over. You can have more than one ethnicity, because it isn't... It isn't something inborn. And, and one has to be very careful about that word ethnicity and ethnic. But it's pretty fundamental that, technically speaking, the left made a wrong turn. It's a political disaster. It, he it, is. Eric Donald Hirsch, Jr., usually cited as E.D. Hirsch, American educator and academic literary critic. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest. I'm prepared almost to drive down to Virginia to have a cup of tea with you sometime soon, Professor Hirsch. Well, it was just wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Not at all. Bye-bye. Commentary of the Week, Kara, is from Laura Waters, the great Garden State, my Garden State co-resident, Laura Waters, who writes, I'm a lifelong Democrat. My first experience in politics was uh, tailing along with my mom to stuff envelopes for George McGovern's campaign. She says she was raised to honor the values of a party, meaning Democrats, that embraced those striving to attain the American dream, regardless of their country or color or income level. And she writes, she feels betrayed by the party my parents worshipped. Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Biden, or whoever wins this thing should embrace and support parents who just want what they all have, which is the freedom to choose. How basic is this? And Laura Waters goes on to say, Elizabeth Warren told the parents in Atlanta she'd reconsider her plan to cut off all federal funding to charter schools. Maybe she will. Maybe she'll embody the values that at least in the arena of public education, many top Democrats have shed like dross. Until then, Laura Waters writes, it's hard for me to consider myself a Democrat. 
So we have, uh, you know, of course, Laura Waters, just one of many people this last week or two uh, when uh, when Senator Warren was confronted by a number of school choice advocates in Atlanta and they said, hey, what's going on? And she kind of lied about how her kids never she said no, the word no, no, my kids didn't go to private school. Uh, which kind of wasn't true. A number of Democrats feeling uh, a bit dismayed by uh, how the party is handling at least the charter sector or school choice generally in this uh, in this primary campaign. And, I, and I'll just get close with one thing, Kara, which is that the one thing Mike Bloomberg might bring to the Demo- to the field of Democrats is is that he is a strong charter supporter, and I suspect. Well, not even suspect. I know he doesn't need union money, unlike basically all the rest of them. So Mike Bloomberg could bring that dimensional change in the race if he becomes viable as a contender for the nomination. He doesn't need union money, and he likes charter schools. And now with our tweet of the week from the San Antonio Charter Moms, and we have to say, Bob, I have to say I love them first just for being the San Antonio Charter Moms. But in this yeah. week, this week, I also, I also love Professor Hirsch too. Wasn't he cool? He was amazing. He was amazing. Oh. He's always been. his books are amazing, and he was he was really a delight. Yeah. But the San Antonio Charter Moms tweeted, and now this was a little while ago. I got to say, but we were on hiatus here in San Antonio. We are thankful for a strong local news team of education reporters, and what they were referring to was an article from I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher her name, but Krista Taravla from the San Antonio Express News, and this article was entitled "Northside ISD Marketing Effort Includes Pointed." questions about charters. And, you know, I love this article so much because in it, this reporter lays out the actual facts, Bob, the facts about one school district in Texas, their attempt to survey parents in a way that was so ridiculously biased against charter schools. So this survey went out to parents who didn't yet know they weren't committed. Were they going to the district? Were they going to go to one of Texas's really great charters? They have a lot of great high-performing charter uh, networks out there. And here's just a sample of one of the questions. If you knew the following to be true, what impact would it have on your opinion of charter schools? And then it goes on to say, many charter schools are run by for-profit businesses. (laughs) So (laughs) cheers to this reporter for simply reporting the facts and for that all of us can now see are um, pretty ridiculous because this school district was not getting at fact at all. So for the record, folks, charters not run for by for-profit businesses. Anyhow, um, that's our tweet of the week. And that marks the conclusion of episode 13. We survive without any unlucky, major unlucky uh, catastrophes. Uh, so we will we will soldier on to episode 14 is next week. The great jo- Joy Pullman will be joining us. And boy, that's going to be great. And so, Kara, uh, thanks again. And we'll see you next week. 